regardless of what we go through in life, and that we have many blessings. While the world swirls around us and it seems like uh, we are a minority and goodness is not evident, it's there. And we believe it, and when we join together today, uh, we glorify Him by sharing in these blessings. This morning we have um, Taylor Sutton. He is on staff at Zionsville Fellowship, and he comes to speak to us. He's in charge of our high school ministry and a gifted and um, educated man. So welcome him this morning. Good morning. Good to be with you all. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to turn our attention to your word together. Um, thank you for the work that my sisters have already done in exploring and wrestling with your word. I pray that our time together and discussions afterwards would just further uh, our wrestling and that you would subdue whatever is dull or resistant in our hearts um, to you and to your grace and that you would be honored in changing us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The opening line of Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina is one of the most famous lines in all of literature, and it says, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, which is a very eloquent way of saying conflict is complicated. If I were to ask you to explain the most painful conflict or relational breakdown that you've experienced, it would be hard to explain. There would be so much backstory, context, detail that you would need to unpack to really help someone else understand that particular conflict. So conflict is complicated, and because of that, conflict can often leave us feeling hopeless. And what makes this passage in James that we're going to look at this morning so powerful is the clarity that it brings. James 4, 1 through 12, brings clarity to conflict because it, it moves us past the complex details of conflict down to the core issues underneath conflict. Now, there's a place for unpacking the messy details to understand a conflict. But there's also a need for clarity because without clarity, we get stuck. And James 4 gives us that much-needed clarity to navigate relationships. So would you open with me to James chapter 4? We're going to look at the first 12 verses of this chapter. James 4, 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, this passage shows us that if we want to pursue relational wholeness, we are going to have to deal with the stuff inside of us that causes relational breakdown. I want to work through this passage in three movements. In the first movement, James diagnoses the the cause of conflict And next, he prescribes the solution to conflict. And and then third, James takes these principles, he, he takes this prescription, and he applies it to a specific aspect of conflict. So let's look at that first part. James gives us a diagnosis for the source of conflict. This is in verses 1 through 6. Look at verse 1 with me. He, he starts with this question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So he's asking the question, where, where do fights, conflicts, where do they come from? What is their cause? What is their origin? That's the issue of our passage. And then look how he answers this in the very next sentence, still in verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. So he answers the question, where do quarrels come from? Where does conflict come from? And the answer is the passions of our heart. And he explains more in verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Stop there for, for now. So basically, at this point, James is identifying the source of conflict in our desires. He calls them passions, desires, uh, coveting. He's talking about uh, the the pleasures, the intense desires that we experience uh, for things that we want. So these selfish desires, James says, are the, the cause of conflict. Now this is so profound because it's precisely in a conflict when our attention is usually 
laser focused on the other person, right? He's the one who has made me angry. She's the one who has wronged me. He's the one who has caused me pain. But James turns our attention inward. He turns our our focus away from the offenses of the other person to the things going on in our hearts. And, And what he singles out, what he identifies is desire, specifically selfish desire, inordinate desire, idolatrous desire. So a desire can be wrong or selfish because the object of desire is wrong. But desire can also be wrong even if the object of our desire is valid, but the intensity of our desire expands to idolatrous proportions. So what I mean by that is, if a, if a valid desire becomes a must-have, then the Bible would say that is a lust. That is now an idol in the sense that it has become something that you have attached God-like status to in that you're saying you cannot live without it. Let me give you an example from my own heart. Uh, I often experience in conflict uh, a desire for respect, to be respected by my wife, my kids, uh, other people. That is a valid desire. It's not a wrong thing to want. But what often happens in my heart is that desire for a valid thing expands to become a must-have, a demand, a, a thing without which I cannot operate. And when that happens, if I bring that idolatrous desire into a conflict, I stop listening. I get defensive. My ears are closed to hearing any kind of uh, correction or, or help, anything that would point out something wrong with me, because the thing that I value the most, the thing that has become a must-have, is, is threatened. And so it fuels conflict. So conflict is fueled to the extent that I bring this lust for respect into it. That, that desire of the heart expanded to idolatrous proportions, causes, feeds, fuels conflict. So James identifies the source of conflict initially as selfish desire, but he doesn't stop there. The diagnosis continues. Look at verse 4. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What is James talking about here? When he says friendship with the world, he's not talking about being friends with non-Christians. The world here refers to the whole system of humanity opposed to God. It's it's an ethos, a a way of life. It's the sum total of all the anti-God impulses that inhabit sinful humanity. So what what James is saying is you can't align yourself with that system, with that ethos, with that way of life, and also remain friends with God. To to be worldly in this sense of verse 4 is to oppose God. So it seems that what James is saying is 
when you let your heart become dominated by a desire that has become a lust, that has become an idol, what you're doing is you are aligning yourself with all the anti-God values of the world. That's a pretty big statement. Look at verse 5. He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So it seems like what verse 5 is saying is, uh, don't do it. Don't become friends with the world because God uh, yearns jealously over us. Now this is actually a difficult verse because it's not totally clear if it's referring to human jealousy or divine jealousy. So the way the ESV has translated it is divine jealousy, God's jealousy over us. And I think that's probably the best way to go. But that raises the question, what does it mean for God to be jealous? Uh, we think of jealousy as a negative vice. So how can this be something true of God? Listen to what uh, theologian J.I. Packer says about this. He says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is. But it appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. Listen to that last part again. God's jealousy is a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. In in this case, the supremely precious thing that God is zealous to preserve is his honor, his glory, and also the loyalty of his people. So it, it is, let me say it this way, it would be wrong for God not to be jealous for his glory and for the loyalty of his people in the same way that something would be wrong if a wife was indifferent to the infidelity of her husband. There is a kind of, uh, there is a lack of jealousy that is a symptom of a lack of love and concern. So that is what we should think of when we think of God's jealousy over us. So verses 4 and 5 are talking about worldliness. That there, there is a way that we align ourselves with the world and God is not pleased with it. But look at verse 6. Verse, verse 6 says, Not only is God jealous for our loyalty, but he also gives us grace. Verse 6, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So notice who the recipients of grace are, the humble. The the proud, on the other hand, are opposed by God. So to be proud is to have an inflated view of your own importance. And the sobering thing about pride is that it, it doesn't always manifest itself as ostentatious boastfulness or arrogance. Pride can be at work in the heart of a person who is outwardly very quiet and mild-mannered because there are almost countless ways that we can have an exalted view of our own importance even as we project an air of humility and meekness. So James is identifying in verses 1 through 6 three different problems. Uh, Selfish desires, worldliness, and pride. And he's calling us away from all of them. But I think it's important to see that I don't think James is saying these are three separate problems so much as 
he is defining selfish desires in terms of worldliness and pride. Think of it this way. When, when I am demanding respect, when I am being dominated by the idol of my own respect, I am turning away from God. I'm being worldly in the sense that I have replaced God with something else, with this desire. So selfish desire is worldly in that sense, but selfish desire is also prideful because what I'm saying in that moment is I am so important that the respect that is due me supersedes all other concerns. So you can see how selfish desire, by definition, is a worldly and prideful thing. That's what James is saying in verses 1 through 6. So if if we were going to summarize the diagnosis, we we could do it this way. The, The source of conflict is the selfish desires of our hearts. The source of conflict, the cause of conflict, the fuel of conflict is the selfish desires that can dominate our hearts. That's the diagnosis. Let's move on to the prescription. What's the solution then? If that's what's wrong, verses 7 through 10 give us the solution. Notice verse 7 is connected to what comes before by the word therefore. So this is following from what James has already said. Let's, let's read verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now in the span of these few verses, we have 11 imperatives, 11 commands. But there is a coherence to them. I I can see uh, maybe three groupings of these commands. Notice how the first few commands, verse 7 and the first part of verse 8, all have to do with turning Godward. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. So you can see this first grouping, verse 7, first part of verse 8, has a Godward bent that we are commanded by James to turn to God. And then in the second half of verse 8, we are told to turn away from sin. Look at what the second half of verse 8 says. Cleanse your hands. That's a way of talking about turning away from outward sins, actions, behaviors, but also purify your hearts. So turn away from inward sins, the invisible sins of our thoughts and motives and desires. So that's the second grouping. Second half of verse 8, turn away from sin. And then verse 9 tells us uh, what our heart should be like as we do this. What should our attitude be as we're doing these things? It should be one of sorrow over our sin. And then verse 10 uh, is not so much a part of any of these three groupings as it is a summary of all of them. Humble yourselves, verse 10 says, before the Lord. So we could summarize, I think, all of these 11 commands with one word. Repentance. Repentance. Repentance in the full biblical sense is turning away from sin, turning to God with 
a godly grief over the sin that you're turning away from. That's what verses 7 through 10 is describing, turning away from sin to God with an appropriate godly grief for the sin that you're forsaking. I want you to notice something else, though, in these verses. Did you notice how uh, interspersed throughout these commands are promises? Look at verse 7. Look, look for the promises. The devil will flee from you. Verse 8, God will draw near to you. Verse 10, God will exalt you. So it's important that we see in these promises the grace of the gospel. We need to understand that James, the, the letter that James has written, is not a book devoid of grace. He uses different verbiage than Paul. He has different emphases than Paul. But at core, James is grounded in the same gospel that all the apostles preached. The good news that God has mercifully made a way through his son, through his death and resurrection, for sinners to be reconciled to him. So the promises of verses 7 through 10 show us that James's call to repentance is grounded in the gospel. The motivation for our repentance is the grace of God. It is these gracious, undeserved promises of God's nearness and God's vindication of us. So how, how should we summarize the prescription? We have these 11 commands describing repentance based on grace. What, what is James's Uh, solution to conflict. James is saying the solution to conflict is for both parties to forsake their selfish desires and return to God. That's the solution at, at the foundation. The solution to conflict is for both parties to forsake, turn away from their selfish desires and return to God, come back to God, turn again to Him in faith and repentance. So I want you to think about your most recent conflict. Consider what desires might be dominating your heart and fueling that conflict. Where is there a need in your heart to say, I need to turn away from making this desire, maybe a valid desire, maybe a good desire, this cannot be my God. I cannot be so prideful and worldly as to take this desire and have it be so important to me that I am committed to fighting for it at all costs. I'm going to turn away from that and I'm going to trust in God afresh. Trust in God today with this conflict, with this maybe breakdown in a relationship. But this might raise an objection. Um, And I, I think of it this way. It is... Is James 4, 1 through 10 calling us to let people walk all over us? In other words, is James 4, 1 through 10 a a command for Christians to be pious doormats? We just let the people we're in conflict with get whatever they want because we've surrendered our desires to God. We trust God. And so we just let people have what they want. I don't believe so. Uh, I can see two really clear reasons why that's not the case. The first one is James is very clearly addressing everybody. So James is speaking uh, to both sides of whatever these conflicts were among these believers. So that means it would be a misuse of James 4 for a 
let's say, a controlling, manipulative husband to demand acquiescence from his wife on the basis of James 4 without applying James 4 to himself. James 4, 1 through 10, and more specifically, the the prescription of 7 through 10 is not meant to be medicine that you shove down other people's throats. It's medicine that you administer to yourself. Which means, in reverse, if somebody is trying to use James 4 to just administer the medicine to you, there's a problem. There's a misuse of this text. But there's something else as well. James, in this very passage, is modeling the biblical principle that Christians have an obligation to help each other fight sin. That's what this, I mean, this passage is James rebuking Christians, calling them to God's standard for them. So take that and just put it into normal everyday relationships. There are times where we as believers have a duty to call out sin in other people. Like it would be, it would be wrong of us to just let uh, the people that we love do whatever they want, to just sin against us at will. That's not good for them. We ought not let them do that. But he, so there are times where we have to do that whether it's with a a spouse or a child or a friend, we have to call out sin sometimes. We have a duty to do that at times. But even in those situations, James 4, 1 through 10 applies to us. Because think about the difference that it makes to approach that kind of conversation where you have to call somebody out or you have to insist that someone stop sinning against you Think of what a difference it makes to approach that conversation with a heart humbly resting in God, with a heart that has surrendered the desires of your heart to God. You come to that difficult conversation much better equipped to handle it well. So in other words, if you will take the medicine of James 4, 7 through 10, you will be the best conflict partner you can be regardless of what the other person is like, regardless of how difficult or unreasonable or manipulative that person might be, you will be the best conflict partner you can be if you turn away from your selfish desires and turn again to God. Uh, Paul Tripp in his book on parenting talks about this idea of parents serving as ambassadors of God to their kids. And the idea that he has in mind there is that an ambassador represents the person who sent them, which means that the ambassador is never the primary offended party. The person who sent them is always the primarily offended party, which means that as parents help their kids uh, through their disobedience and their sin and they help them grow, if they have the mindset of an ambassador, they are able to do that with a heart of patience and compassion, uh, even calmness. Because, again, as an ambassador, the parent is not the primary offended party. I think we can take that ambassadorial mindset to any relationship. I think that's, that's one way of taking James 4, 1 through 10, and putting it into practice is that with difficult people, difficult conversations, conflicts, that discourage, discourage us, things, people that are outside of our control, we can still show up to those conversations and those relationships with the mindset of 
I represent God here. I, I trust God here. I can interact with a difficult person, even a, a difficult person that needs to be corrected or, or a consequence that, that needs to be enforced. We can be the kind of people that do that with, with calm and peace and love. So we've seen the diagnosis, verses 1 through 6, the prescription in verses 7 through 10. In, in 11 and 12, what James does, I think, is he takes these principles, he takes this prescription, and he applies it to one specific case study, one aspect, one expression of conflict. And, and the, the, taste, the, the case study he uses is the destructive words that often accompany a conflict. Look at verse 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So, so first of all, what's he talking about? He's talking about speaking evil, slander, and judging uh, or, or condemning other people. Uh, he's saying, don't do that. That's not permitted for Christians. Now, it's important for us to understand that he's not saying never call each other out. L- listen to what uh, one commentator says about this. We, we should uh, note that James is not prohibiting the proper and necessary discrimination that every Christian should exercise. Nor is he forbidding the right of the community, the Christian community, to determine right and wrong among its members. Here's what James is rebuking in verse 11. James rebukes jealous, censorious, meaning critical, speech, by which we condemn others as being wrong in the sight of God. So that's what what, what James is prohibiting in verse 11. Uh, Notice He says, he goes so far as to say, if you do this, you are actually judging the law, speaking evil against the law, which is not totally clear what he means. Uh, Some people say he's probably assuming that we would understand that to to condemn and to slander is to disobey the law, which means it, it constitutes an insult to the law. Whatever James means about judging the law, verse 12 shows us what he thinks the solution is. And, and this is where he's applying verses 7 through 10. Look at verse 12 again. Who are you to judge your neighbor? There's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. In other words, take that humble uh, repentance, trusting God, turning away from pride and selfish desires, and apply that to the temptation to slander and condemn. That's the solution. So, Here's the, here's the takeaway. If I could just distill it down to a sentence, uh, what this passage calls us to. Uh, relational wholeness. Relational wholeness demands that we entrust ourselves humbly to God. That's the heart posture at the very root of this. Relational wholeness can only happen when we are humbly entrusting ourselves to God. The reason why I I thrash and strain and fight for respect in those moments where that's dominating my heart 
fundamentally the reason why is I suspect that God is not really committed to taking care of me. He's not really committed to vindicating me or or caring for me. And so as a result, I strive and thrash and fight because no one else is going to do it. So the thinking goes. But on the other hand, when I give God my desires and I give him my fears, I give him my whole self, I'm calmed. God's got me. It's going to be okay no matter how much disrespect I may experience in the course of a lifetime. So the the key here is to have a heart that humbly entrusts itself to God. And the, the paradox of this is that we need this truth precisely because relational wholeness often remains elusive in this life. What I mean is, there are situations where despite your best efforts, resolution remains elusive. A conflict persists. A a relationship stays strained or broken despite your best efforts to repent and trust God. But here's what James 4 reminds us of. James 4 is not holding out hope that we can create a relational utopia if we all just repent hard enough. The, the hope of James 4 is found in verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So in Christ, God has made it possible for us to experience total, absolute relational wholeness with him. He's made that possible by pouring out the the just judgment that our sin deserved on Christ so that we could be counted as righteous and be brought home to God. So we have this fundamental reality in our lives as Christians where our relationship with God is totally whole. It is restored. And what James is saying, the vision, I think, of this passage is that that vertical relational restoration is meant to emanate out into our families and our churches and our, and our neighborhoods that we would strive to expand that, that peace, that reconciliation. But that project will remain unfinished and imperfect in this life until Christ returns. But even as that project of horizontal relational restoration, even as that project remains unfinished and imperfect, we have the motivation to keep working at it because the nearness of God is our good. He is drawn near to us in Christ. And because of that, we have confidence that one day he will make all things right. He will put all broken relationships back together. And so we continue in that security of God's nearness to us and in the hope that he will one day extend that to all of creation, we persist. We keep fighting. We keep repenting. We keep humbly engaging in difficult relationships or difficult conversations because God's got us. Let's pray. Uh, God, how humbling it is to realize our frailty and our sin 
And that even in those moments and relationships where the sin of others looms so large in our minds, and perhaps rightly so, that it is in those moments that we too are shown to be sinners, to be people in need of grace. Um, I, I just pray that you would help us, that you would overwhelm our pride and our worldliness and our suspicion of you with your love and grace uh, so that we might be courageous, firm, but compassionate and humble people as we navigate the many difficulties of relationships in a fallen world. Lord, we uh, commit ourselves to you and to your care in Christ. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you.